The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. By a hady shady pool, gone fishing. Hey guys, Sam was singing Come to the River, so I got excited. And uh, it is Father's Day, and the fish are biting, so I'm ready. Amen? Amen? You know, Mother's Day, they want to come to church and go to brunch. Father's Day, we want to go to the lake. Hang on. Just taking a picture. Some of you guys may not know this about me by now because you've never been here before. (laughs) But um, I I like to fish. I've been a fly fisherman for a while. I've gotten pretty good at it, but I don't don't like to brag. You know what I mean? I'm not one of those guys. So, um, oh, weird. Look at that. How'd that get up there? How'd that get up there? Yeah, so today we're going to talk a little bit about this. So um, let me tell you a little bit about myself and why we're even doing some of this. And then I think, hope you'll see a tie-in here in Paul's text in 1 Thessalonians. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you actually follow me on Instagram? Raise your hand. There's a few people. So you think I fish every single day, don't you? It's true, right? Because here's, I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. Me and some friends of mine who have kind of gotten to become pretty decent fly fishermen and got to really enjoy spending time out on the river, um, we have learned how to take Instagram and use it to our own advantage. And through Instagram, we've actually gotten connected with some different fly fishing companies and we actually rep some of their gear. So we post photos at least every single day, pushing photos out there and then tagging these different companies. And this company, it's a company called Steelhead Gear. There's the hat and shirt on there. And so we, we put these pictures out there because they send us this gear. We tag that stuff for them and push it out there. And then it gets us either discounts or absolutely free stuff. And anyone that has ever gone to go buy fishing gear knows free fishing gear is good fishing gear. Amen. So we, we've kind of turned it into a thing. And so here's my little secret. A lot of those pictures I post each day, they're old. Don't tell anybody. So a lot of times we'll go fishing maybe once a week. We'll take a ton of photos and then we use those and we unveil those throughout the week and we use them to kind of promote and actually get free gear. We, uh, this picture doesn't need to stay up. It's Father's Day. Let's get something a little sweeter than that if we can. That's better. Okay, so, um, so we've been doing this now for a little while and because of that, we've actually learned, um, uh, gotten to know a lot of different people in the fly fishing community, not just here in Southern Oregon, you guys can bring the lights up, but all the way throughout Oregon as well. Just last week, I got the chance to go to Bend, connect and have dinner with a couple of guys that are really well-known fly fishermen, anglers, and guys who also rep the same products that we do and all this stuff, had dinner with them and it was a great time. And so it's been a real positive getting into sort of this vein of this fly fishing world as weird as it is that you can use social media in that way and it's been a lot of fun we've made really good friends got to know a lot of people that don't know Jesus and it's just been a really cool opportunity for me that being said one thing I have learned for sure since we started doing this is as you start promoting those companies your followers go up because they're taking your pictures and they're pushing them out there and I'm like I'm like small fish so to speak pun intended I got like 1,500 followers, I think, something like that, are following me. These other guys that I'm with, they've got like 6,000, 10,000, 12,000. They're like way more hardcore about all this stuff even than I am. But as we've gotten to know each other and we've done all this, we've seen things through there. Not only do you get opportunities,
opportunities to post pictures of your fish, brag about your fish, get free gear, but you put yourself out there to get hammered by people on social media, especially the fly fishing world. It is full of elitist, purist people that are arrogant and pride, uh, proud about the stuff that they do. And what I've learned, this may be new to you, but not everybody on social media is nice. Did you guys know this? Not everybody on social media is nice. And so me, not so much. I haven't experienced a ton of it, but some of my friends who are doing this kind of stuff and who have been doing this stuff even longer than I have, man, I have watched these guys get crushed by critics and by other people in the fly fishing world. And th so they'll come to pictures like the ones that I posted and they'll make comments like, why are you holding the fish out of water so long? That's not good for them. Why are you squeezing the fish? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Oh, you caught that one with nymphs instead of swinging because they're elitist about their methods. And you find that though it's a benefit, you get yourself out there, you're getting gear, you're repping companies, all this kind of stuff is happening. At the same time, you put yourself out there for a lot of criticism. And the criticism comes and it comes fast. And the more that guys go out there and the more they do this and the more followers they get, the more cr criticism and haters and jealousy and all that stuff happens. And so you have to kind of cling to the words of our immortal itinerant philosopher, Taylor Swift. Haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Shake it off, right? Well, believe it or not, there's a tie-in to this. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is a guy who has been out there on the front lines. His name is getting out there. His reputation is getting out there. All of this stuff is spreading all over Macedonia, up into Rome, down in through the Middle East. His word and his reputation and his mission is getting out there everywhere. And he's gaining more and more and more of a following. And as a result, he gets more and more haters that are going to hate, hate. Wait a minute. Haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Six of them. If you know the song, you know what I'm doing there. So, in this text, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is showing us how to respond to people that are critical against us. Paul's showing us how to deal with people that are attacking you. Now, Paul is not being attacked by people that are inside the church. Over and over throughout the letter, you see Paul's writing. He keeps talking and praising about the love that they have one for another. It is clear that Paul's supported by the people inside the church. It's the people that are outside the church, the people that are not really close to them, as is normal in our own life all the time, are the ones that are the greatest critics and have the most to say about him. And in this particular case, this is what's happening. As you guys remember the story, Paul was in Philippi, persecution got hot when he was in Philippi. He ended up in prison. Next thing you know, God rattles the cages. Everything comes down. Paul is set free. He moves on and finds himself in this city called Thessalonica. He's there only for about three weeks. He says he's there for three Sabbaths. So he's in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, reasoning, talking with the people there about the gospel, taking the Old Testament scriptures and showing them how those things are fulfilled in Christ and preaching the gospel to these people there. And people are being converted. Lives are changing. There's Jews that are being converted. There's all sorts of people there that are coming to Jesus. But persecution starts to build again and it gets really hot. And so Paul's there maybe a month total, maybe, before he has to end up. They, they rush him out at night. They take him out. He goes on to Berea. Then he goes on to Athens. He ends up now. He's in Corinth as he's writing this particular letter to them. 
And so Paul has had to leave. And when he left the church that was there first, Paul left with a lot of anxiety. I mean, he was only there for a short period of time. It doesn't take long to read through Paul's writings to understand that he views the churches that he plants as his children, as his kids. He'll, he'll talk about it in this very text, how he looked at them as a father. And he's not making that up. He means that sincerely. But here's a guy, he's there for only three weeks Four at the most, persecution builds. He sees the animosity and the hatred to the gospel building up because he, and remember the theme, he's preaching to them another king, this King Jesus. Not Caesar, not any of these other gods or kings that they serve. He's preaching this King Jesus who is Lord of all. And as he leaves, he sees the animosity of all of this building and he does not know what's going to happen to this church. And so he's in Corinth just waiting There's no social media there. He can't check and see what their status is. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know what's going on. And then finally, Timothy arrives and Timothy brings report to him saying, Paul, they're doing well. They're growing. They remember you fondly. They're doing well. And so Paul is writing back to them and he gives them incredible thanks and gratitude. Chapter one, he's talking about how he prays for them and how he loves them. And then in chapter two now, he's going to start responding to some of these critics And the critics that are looking at Paul's ministry, or at least the ones that he's going to address here in chapter 2, are people that are not so much critiquing the gospel in this specific case, at least at this time in what he's writing, but they're critics of Paul. So it's, it's not like they're going, no, that's not true, Jesus isn't the real God. No, that's not true, that's not the real gospel. No, that's not, they're not attacking that. This is a personal affront and attack to Paul. And the reason that they're doing it, or the way that they're doing that, is they're coming to all these people here in the church. And so imagine the setting, persecution's rising, some people have died, the gospel's growing in this church, but the heat around them is too, and people are coming in and criticizing them and mocking them, and this is what they're saying. They're saying, that guy Paul, why, why would you listen to him? Why would you follow him? He's a fraud. He's no different than the itinerant philosophers that are coming through left and right all over the place. Now, they were known as sophists. Sophists, or itinerant philosophers, were kind of the rock stars of the day in the Greco-Roman world. They were well-known speakers, um, maybe theologians to some degree, though certainly not Christian theologians, that's for sure. Philosophers, wise men who are great orators and could give great and entertaining and awe-inspiring speeches. And they would travel around from city to city to city. They would set up shop just like a rock concert's going to be. They would come in, they would give these speeches, get all this money, collect all these donations. They were just really fancy speeches for hire. They were entertainers. And then when the time was up, when they had finished their thing, when they had made all the money that they could from that town, they would pack up the show and move on to the next city. And that's why they were referred as that, itinerant philosophers that would just travel all throughout the area. And so these people are dying. These people are dealing with insane persecution. Their lives have been rocked and turned upside down, if you remember the story in Acts. And and they're going through all sorts of difficulty. And so these people are coming in and they're saying, why are you doing this? Why would you lay your life out there like this? Why would you subject yourself to this sort of persecution and hatred and animosity because of your listening to that guy? He's just a philosopher. He's no different than any of the other guys. He just came through town to make his money and he's moved on. And you have to admit, there's a case to be made. 
I mean, if you just look at the bare facts of what's happening there, it'd be easy to understand why they feel this way. I mean, Paul, the way things have actually gone down, not that he did it intentionally, he certainly didn't do it intentionally, but kind of the way things have gone down would give a little bit of weight to their understanding of this. I mean, Paul had twice received money from the Philippians and disappeared. He's done this in different places before, and word of that, we even know his te- the text is going to say how word of his persecution, word of what happened in Philippi has followed him to Thessalonica. So they know about some of these things. He has a reputation. Um, he converted while he was in Thessalonica. Interestingly enough, it says he converted not a few prominent women. And what that means literally is wealthy women. And he had done the same thing in Philippi. Remember Lydia? And so he comes into Thessalonica and he's preaching the gospel. And there was not a few women of means and resource that had heard his gospel message and became followers of Christ and were buying into and believing Paul's message. That could look shady. That could look cultish. Guy came in, swooned some rich gals with a flashy message and has taken advantage of them. And then there's this guy, Jason. We know that there's this guy, Jason, that he's at least wealthy enough to post bail for them when they get arrested. And he's at least got means enough to be able to bring them into his home. So he's probably a guy of some means as well. And looks like maybe they're taking advantage of this guy, certainly living off of some of his culture. And then at the same time, when all this is going on and then the the pressure came, Paul bailed. Now granted, they, they ushered him out. But this is what people are saying. I mean, he just... He just came into town and set up shop. He just came and did the teachings like everybody else. He won some of you people over. Did you notice how he got some of those wealthy ladies involved? He made a point to win them over, didn't he? And then when things got hot, he just took his money and ran. What do you think? What are you thinking? Why would you follow this guy? And why in the world would you allow your lives to be turned upside down and even threatened for just another philosopher? There was many before him. There'll be many after him. What are you doing? So what do you do with that? How do you, how do you answer this? Well, you guys have heard it before. The best way that you can answer your critics is to outlive them. And that's really what Paul has done. And as you're going to see as we start going through this text... Multiple times, in fact, in three different times, just in two verses alone, Paul is going to point to them and say to them, you remember the way we were when we were there. Hey, you're witnesses to the way we interacted with you when we were there. Hey, you know how we were when we were there. Paul had a track record of going into places and living in such a way that his mannerisms, his lifestyle, and the way he interacted with the people that he was preaching the gospel to, it backed up the gospel message that he was preaching. And you guys know, a few weeks ago, I kind of crushed this line as I have done before. Um, It's the old, it's ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi, though we don't know for sure and actually doubt that he actually said it. But you guys know the line, right? At all times, be preaching the gospel, and if necessary, use words. You guys have heard that. You've seen that everywhere. And we kind of crush that here regularly. By we, I mean me. Crush that regularly because the idea is you've got to use words to preach the gospel. You've got to use words to preach the gospel. People can't just assume Jesus 
People can't just assume their state outside of the grace of God. They just can't assume. You need to tell them about the King Jesus who set his life down, set his life on the cross, bore the pain and the shame of all of our sin on behalf of others, died for our sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, has given grace and forgiveness to those who will believe in him and will accept him as their righteousness. And this King who is once again coming soon to rule and reign and set things right forever that doesn't just get assumed like you have to say that but if anything that quote at all times preach the gospel if necessary use words it's just reversed preach the gospel and at all times live in such a way that you back up the words that you're speaking when you do that'd be a much better quote you guys can tweet that one and give it to Assisi he's dead he won't know you guys Preach the gospel at all times and live at all times in a manner that backs up the gospel that you preach. And this was Paul's method. And so Paul lived that way among them. And so now that these critics are coming and he's hearing these attacks, man, Timothy's coming to him. Just imagine it. Timothy's coming. Paul, you will not believe what they wrote about you on Facebook. You will not believe the stuff that they said. It's just not true. And Paul, first of all, he doesn't go and attack his attackers. He just goes to those who he's genuinely concerned with. He goes to his family, if you will. He goes to the people he's called to minister to. And he doesn't go on some sort of like, they're wrong and here's all the different points why. He's able to point back to the testimony of his own life and just say, well, I mean, look, you, you know. You saw how we, we lived there. Like, uh, you, you know from the way that I carried myself that I was different than the people that had come before and will come after. You saw that the way I operated among you was separate and different and nothing like those people, those shysters that come in and give speeches and just want money and then just want to take it and run. I was nothing like those things. Paul outlived his critics. And so in this text, the way this is all going to break down, in verse 1 through 6, Paul's going to talk about what he's not. In verses 7 through 12, he's going to talk about what he was. And then in verse 13, it's what he celebrates. So what he's not, what he was, and what he celebrates. Verse 1 says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul gives us here a few different things that show or describe what he's not. And in each case of these, remember, he's not going, this is who I am. He's pointing back to the way he was. He's able to point to his character as backing up who he is. And the first one he says in verse 1 is that he was not insincere. Where it says, our coming to you was not in vain. It means literally, it wasn't insincere. When I came to you, you mattered. I didn't come to you. It wasn't some meaningless thing when I came there. My time with you mattered. My conduct with you was sincere because you matter. The mission matters. All of these things matter to you. It wasn't just a meaningless, empty visit when I came to you. Verse 2, he says that he did not come in shame or fear. 
in verse 2, he talks about the fact, like, look, you know what happened in Philippi. You know how I was treated. And I, I didn't come here to hide. I mean, think about it. Paul knows over and over and over. We, we even pointed this out when we looked at the, fir- the introduction in Thessalonians. He kind of s- got to start figuring out at some point how this is going to go down in every city that he goes to. But he keeps doing the same thing. Have you noticed? He'll go into a synagogue. He'll begin to reason with the people there. He'll begin to preach the gospel. A church will get born, but then the heat gets bad and the people are ushering him off so that his missionary journey can continue and the church there can continue to grow. So he goes to the next city. And when he goes to the next city, he doesn't walk in there and go, all right, last time that ended badly and got really rough. Maybe I should do something different or maybe I should back off some of that gospel preaching that I'm doing. Maybe I could just talk about how nice Jesus is. I don't have to talk about his lordship or that he's king. I don't really need to attack all of their other gods by saying this God is over them. I could just back off. Nope, not Paul. Paul's like, all right, second verse, same as the first. Let's go. There is another king, Jesus, and he does the same thing everywhere he goes. And if there was anyone that would have reason to come into Thessalonica to change his message so that he could gain more from people, rather than preaching a message that would get him run out of town in three weeks, it would be Paul. But he's like, look, you know what happened. We all know what happened. And I came here knowing that I would experience and very well could experience the same thing that happened before. But I wasn't shying away from the difficulty. I came and preached the message. In verse 3, he says, I didn't come to deceive or fool people. In verse 3, he says, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. What I'm teaching you is true. What happened is real. And, and I didn't come to try to deceive you. And fishing reference again, the word deceive there is actually a fishing term in the original language. Those of you that think Jesus isn't into fishing need to read your Bibles more. But in this text, it's what it really means. The idea is I wasn't throwing some sort of bait at you to try to hook you on something. And that's really what all fishing is. I always sometimes, I, I, I mean, I can be a little bit fly fishing snobbish, but you know, if you really think about it, all fishing, no matter what the method is, you're fishing with a hook. You are. People are like, do you use flies? Do you use worms? Do you use spinners? Do you use, what kind of lures do you use? What? In reality, it all boils down to, we fish with hooks, but we dress hooks in a way to fool fish into biting. So we dress them with eggs, night crawlers, whatever the case may be that you fish with. We dress them in such a way because we're trying to throw something in front of the fish that's enticing to them that looks attractive to them, and that will cause them to bite so that they're hooked so that we can get what we want out of them. And Paul's saying, that's not what I did. I didn't come with some message all dressed up to try to get you to bite so that I could get what I wanted out of you. I wasn't trying to deceive you. I came in speaking truth, not insincerity. I wasn't a shyster, Paul says. In verse 5, it says, I was not hiding selfish motives or for greed. He says in verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Like flattery, you guys know, any flattery is always selfish. You guys know that? Flattery, the person speaking flattery, it's always selfish, even if it's dressed in such a way that it seems like you're building confidence or building something in the other person. Compliments aren't selfish. Flattery is selfish. Flattery is, I'm trying to butter someone up so that I can get what I want from them. And Paul's saying, like, you, you know that's not what we did. We didn't come in trying to butter you guys up and schmooze you to get things from you. 
And then in verse 6, a big one, he says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I could have come in, guys, and thrown my weight around as an apostle and said, serve me, feed me, pay me, do what I say, do what I want. I could have thrown my weight around. And I've also, I could have come in here and been chasing the applause and approval of men. I could have been doing that. I could have been like the sophists who come and they want to build an audience and they want praise and glory and honor from people just like a rock star at a concert with 10,000 people with their hands in the air singing their songs. I could have been that guy and that's not what I did. I didn't come here vainly trying to like build something of myself when I was here. That's not why I came. He wasn't living as a people pleaser. Anybody else, don't raise your hand, and you wouldn't want to because then you'd be worried what other people think. But anyone in here ever or currently been victim to that? People-pleasing? Man, take it from me, that will crush you so fast. Being enslaved to what other people think and living, chasing the approval of people? You just become a slave. You, You end up having to jump through every hoop anyone lays in front of you. And even when you're, when you're really victim to that, and I've been that way in so many times, not just in my life in general, but even in my ministry where I'll find that there's things that like, I, I feel like we really need to do this. I feel like we really need to talk about this. I feel like we really need to teach this, but what will they think? And they're not going to like it. And it might rub some people raw. So maybe I shouldn't do that. And wrestling with that temptation is not something that's foreign at all to people in ministry, much less people anywhere else in the world. But we do that, whether it's living for the likes on Facebook or the likes on Instagram or the followers or just in fear of what people think. And here's Paul. Think about this. He went from one of the chief rabbis, one of the chief religious leaders in Israel to a guy who can say with all sincerity, I'm not living for the approval of men. That's a big deal. Because if you know anything about even the stories of how the Pharisees and religious leaders carried themselves in the days of Jesus, you know they were all about the approval of men. I mean, they would tithe in such a way that people noticed so that they got glory. They they were constantly worried about what people thought of them. How holy do they look in front of all these other people? And Paul calls himself at the time the Pharisee of Pharisees. Like no one's topping him. And he goes from a guy living that sort of life to a guy who can, with sincerity, say to people, I'm not living, I'm not living that way. I'm not enslaved to what people think of me. I'm a slave to what one person thinks of me. And that's Jesus Christ. This is what he says, take a look at it in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, Paul says, look, I... My approval, I already have it. I'm not worried what my reviews are going to be. I'm not worried what the newspaper is going to say about my speech the next day. It doesn't matter what they're going to say about me on Instagram or Facebook or any of those kind of things. Those things don't matter because I have already been given the approval of God. So I don't care what anybody else has to think. God approves of me. Who are they? God approves of me. That is such a word for some of us in this social media age, isn't it? Oh my gosh, they don't like me. 
Oh my gosh, they criticized me. Oh, he said I cheated on that when I caught that fish. Oh, and, and just fear of people and what they say. And you ever had a, one day get ruined by one comment on social media? Or one comment from someone else that just digs at your heart or who you are? Paul's like, man, I'm not slave to that. I didn't come for the approval of men. I live in the approval of God. Well, that's easy to say if Paul, if, uh, if God approves of you. But we know we can know, we know how God feels about us. Perfect love has no man. There's no greater love has any man than this that he would lay his life down for his friend. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, him carrying the sins of us and the world to the cross on our benefit while we were at our worst. There is nothing in the history of the world that anyone else could ever do to prove love and approval to you greater than that. It's already been approved. What more do you want? Well, but he doesn't like me now because I'm failing. He took your failings to the cross. He knew about them already. And he did it willingly for the joy set before him, the scriptures say. He delights in you. God approves of you. If it was an Instagram thing, he would like and retweet a million times. He approves of you. And we don't need to be enslaved to what people think of us all the time. Paul's like, I wasn't like that. I wasn't insincere. I wasn't in shame or fear. I didn't try to deceive people. I wasn't hiding selfish motives. I wasn't seeking the approval or praise of others. That's what Paul was like. And Paul says, hey, be like me. Remember that? Imitate me. Be like me. So you go, well, that's easier said than done. How do we do that? Here's the key for what Paul was able to do from the transformation to how Paul carried himself to how Paul dealt with critics to even what was behind the very theology that Paul teaches all of the time. It could be summarized really in two words, the idea in Christ. He'll use it in other ways, in God, in Jesus, in Christ, with him, in him. He'll use those things earlier in this text. He says, we had boldness in our God in Christ. And th this is the idea that we probably haven't even been uh, faithful enough to keep in front of you guys, even as teachers here at Heritage. The idea is this. When you become a Christian, and the text is that we're in him, we're in Christ, there's a real union that takes place between us and Christ. And, and a lot of times, the, the only place where that kind of gets pushed forward is maybe in super legalistic churches or places like where I grew up where they would say, you know, God's with you everywhere you go, so you better be careful what you do, you know, that kind of thing. But, but there's an, a truth and an idea in that that's much, much, much greater than that. We are in Christ. We have been bonded to. We are, there is a real and tangible union that takes place in Christ. And to the degree that we understand that, that we have been grafted in, brought in, approved of by him, to the degree we understand the gospel and the fact that he is for us, he is with us, and more than that, we are now for him. To the degree that you understand that, the easier it is to be able to live the way Paul did, critics or not. And we can see how this plays out as you look at Paul as he moves forward. No, not talking anymore about what he wasn't, but now Paul begins to talk about what he was. Take a look at this in verses 7 through 12. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and to his glory. So Paul has, with regularity, used this line. He uses it in Corinthians 11.1. You might remember it. He says, 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. Paul has this notion, this idea that the things that I'm trying to do, just like a, a disciple who follows his rabbi, I'm trying to imitate and do and be like my rabbi. So now that we have been saved in Christ, there is a union us with Christ. And so my life becomes a reflection of Christ. I, I'm to become a manifestation, you might say, of the very nature and conduct and character of Jesus Christ himself as I now navigate the world that's in front of me. I'm, I'm a Christ follower. The very word Christian itself means little Christ. And, and to Paul, this wasn't just philosophy. This was real. He genuinely believed with all his heart that he was in union with Christ because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that in walking, he would be empowered by Christ to live like Christ as he went. And so, for example, verse 7, Paul says, we were gentle among you. Think, think about Paul. Now, the things that we know about Paul's nature wouldn't exactly bode gentleness. I mean, from a guy who murdered Christians and had Christians arrested and rounded him up to a boisterous teacher, to a guy who had been the supreme or at the, the heights of pride, it wouldn't come across as a guy who's patient with people that are a little slow to follow along. And yet... Paul comes to these churches one after the other after the other with such gentleness and patience and tenderness with them, knowing he's running from his life every time he goes somewhere. I mean, he doesn't even come in there and go, guys, I don't know how long I have. Listen, guys, don't you get it? Like he, he doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. He displays such gentleness. How can Paul do that? Because Paul is in Christ. Paul is in union with Christ. Paul understands and knows Christ. And think about Christ. I mean, who was more patient with anyone on the face of the earth than Christ was with his apostles? Maybe how Christ is with me. That's about it. And he was gentle with them. And he was patient with them. And, and what Paul's saying is, and what Paul's doing here with these guys, he's being gentle with them. But his gentleness is not about him. It's pointing to something beyond him. It's pointing to Jesus. Another one, look at verse 8. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He comes in and, and, and Paul was incredibly considerate with these guys. He was affectionate and giving in, ver I'm sorry, I read verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but what? Also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us, or in other words, you had become our beloved. And this is the idea. 
There's these, these traveling philosophers that are coming into town over and over and over. They're coming in to take. Oh, they might be doing a performance. They might even be really, really good. But they're not coming because they genuinely love the people of Thessalonica and they really want to impart goodness to them. No one believes that. They're coming because it's their job. They're coming because it's how they make a living. And when the money stream in each city begins to wean, and it's, it, for them it's time to just pack up and go on to the next place so that they can keep money. They're chasing money, not people. And Paul's like, look, man, we didn't just come in wanting to share the gospel with you alone, but our own lives. We wanted to give of ourselves to you, strangers he had known for three weeks. How can Paul do that? Because he's in Christ. And what did Christ do? I mean, he laid down his life. He gave. His very mission was about giving his life even for those who were enemies of the cross. And because of his understanding, his union, and his awareness of the union with Christ, that, that I'm not just here on my own. I'm, I am in union with Christ. I am in Christ. And that's why and how I can do this before them. He was there. He was to be very giving with them. Verse 9, which we just read, says he was considerate. So he came into town. He was probably aware of how these different traveling people come in, living off the money. He certainly knew that this city is known for its wealth. And maybe there's a lot of people that that's just what they come for over and over and over. They just come and their goal is the money. And Paul's like, you know what? I understand the reality of the situation here. I understand how it could affect the mission. I understand all these kind of things. And so he was considerate of them and desirous to live in such a way that set himself apart from the rest of them. He didn't want to be a burden to the people and he didn't want to be anything like the other people who came by. He wanted his life to back the message that he was speaking. And so he came in and said, well, we worked ourselves. We learned from, while he was in Corinth, he was actually working as a tent maker, which tents then were made out of leather. And he's in Corinth even as he's writing this. So most likely that's what he was doing there at the time. I'll, I'll come in, I'll teach when I can, and then I'll go to work as well. I'm going to make tents and I'm going to do this because I don't want to be like everybody else who's here to just take advantage of you. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to be a burden from you. I'm here to give and share even of myself to you. Why could he do that? Jesus said, Whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He's in Christ. And the mission of Christ was not to be served, but to serve. And Paul's aware of that. And then the last one, verse 10, Paul was holy. In verse 10, you are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. He he lived in such a way that set himself apart. He could point back to his own life. When the accusations were, he's just like all those other guys. Why would you follow him? Why would you listen to that guy? He, he can say, hey, you, you, you yourselves know. You yourselves know. I mean, I was among the unbelievers and I was preaching to the unbelievers and I was rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. That's the mission. But I was different from the unbelievers. And, and no one could point at my conduct during that time and, and, and say anything differently. I was separate. I lived in this righteous way. And I'd said last one, I'm wrong. Verse 11 actually gives us the last one. It says in verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul was a father to these people. 
Shameless Father's Day tie-in. You guys like that? Paul was a father to them. And he, and he really was. When you read through the text, Paul genuinely understood the reality of the family of Christ when the gospel comes in. And he viewed himself, not because he felt he was superior to them, but it was his ministry that was giving birth to these churches. And so he cared for them and looked after them like a father. And the thing that's fatherly that Paul points to more often than not when he's saying, I was like a father, was his teaching. What he taught them. You see, in Greco-Roman culture at that day, the teaching and training of children as they were growing was the responsibility of the father. That's not quite as common today. Nowadays, dads teach kids how to ride bikes, how to back up trailers, how to fish or hunt, how to do some of those kind of things, how to ride a bike. But fathers were the primary teachers in every aspect of their children as they were growing up. And so Paul's going... Like a father, I assumed the role of teaching and exhorting and training you. I wanted to help you grow, so I became your teacher like a father. And what was it that he taught them? It says, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And this goes back to this whole idea that we're talking about. Hopefully this ties it all together for you and helps you forget that I'm standing here in waiters. It's hot, by the way, in waiters. Just, you know. To Paul, the end of the gospel was not, oh, they raised their hand at an altar call. That wasn't it. The, the end of salvation was not just getting saved. To Paul, he has this huge kingdom mindset. And this book is going to highlight it maybe more than any of the other ones that he writes. Because he's writing this as he's about to go into the understanding that the king that has saved us, the king that now reigns over us, that king's also returning soon. And so to Paul, this is the understanding. Listen, now that you're in Christ, you've been adopted into his family and Jesus is the king. And there's a real kingdom, not just then, but now. You're part of the kingdom now. Right now, the kingdom has been inaugurated. It's here. Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came, the kingdom has been inaugurated. So we are now ambassadors of Christ and of a new kingdom. That's why he writes, there's no more Greek. There's no more Jew. There's no more of all the different nationalities. We are now in Christ and the king is coming. But the end result of salvation is not just, I got saved. Now let's wait for him to come. The end result of salvation is that we now walk in a manner worthy of the king who is coming because we are now ambassadors and representatives. We are now in Christ now, not just later. And so he's encouraging them and exhorting them. So now be like Christ. Live like Christ. Walk like Christ. Don't just preach Christ, but then let your life, your, your actual life, the way your conduct, the way you operate with others back the message because your preaching is about Jesus and your life looks like Jesus. This is what Paul's constantly calling them to do. The emphasis is that you've been saved and God is now calling you to live for his glory in a kingdom now because of the expectation that the kingdom will be, in, it will be fully consummated then. Not just getting saved now and then waiting for the king to come so that we can live and be about the king's business then. 
but to be about that now. Salvation is not merely punching a ticket into heaven, but salvation is an identity change. It's a nationality change. It's it's a loyalty change. It's a kingdom change that, that sets all the other gods of our world behind and says, now I live for you, my king. And, and Paul says, this is what I, as a father, knew was my responsibility and job to teach you. And, and then look at his win. And dads, think about this for a minute. Like, it's a Father's Day tie-in. I think it's a fair one. What's, your, what's the win for you with your kids? Like, you know, the proud dad moment. What's the real win for you and your kids? You know, for me, I, I'm excited for the day that, that my son gets a little older and attention span a little bit longer so that he can float the river with me and I can start posting photos on there of my son holding big old trout, big old steelhead. I can't wait for that day. And I'll do it proudly and without shame. And I'll post photos from every angle <laughs> and I'll tag everybody in the world in it. I'll do it shamelessly. But is that the big win? Is, is that it? Is it sports? I mean, how many of us, you guys know the whole LeVar Ball story that's going on and all that kind of stuff? Like, what's the big win for your kids? Is it, is it to see your kid get the college scholarship or, or go on maybe to be a professional athlete or whatever it is? Is it that they'll be financially successful? What, what is it there? Or is it that they'll know and walk with Jesus in truth? As 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. What's the win? For Paul, look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. And that's Paul's win. Paul, what, what determined that your ministry there was successful? Was it that the church got big? Was it that the whole city got saved? Was it that all of your critics were silenced because they heard your speech and what more could they say? You were amazing? No, none of those things even necessarily happened. The win for him was that these people that he had poured his life into and felt a fatherly call to had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, received the gospel of Jesus Christ, and were now walking in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was the win. And dads, that's got to be our win. And I got the opportunity in early May, we had a conference in Reno. And uh, um, my daughter had just turned 13 like a month before that. And we, we do daddy dates for the kids on their birthdays. And, and so her, that's a significant one, 13, she became a teenager. And so um, we were trying to figure out what we could do. And I saw that while we were gonna be in Reno at this particular conference, my daughter's favorite musician, country singer named Cole Swindell, was gonna be in concert there in Reno opening for Dirks Bentley. And so I was looking at it and I see that tickets are only like 35 bucks. And so I'm like, hey, okay, Hannah, here's the deal. For your daddy date, I'll take you to that concert. But for the next couple of days, we're gonna be in a pastor's conference. You're gonna be the only kid you're going to be sitting by my side through what equates to about five church services a day. And then at night, we're going to go out to dinner with other pastors who are all going to talk about all the things we talked about all day long. And you're going to hear that over and over and over and over and over and over. Do you want to go? Yes. She wanted to go. 
Cole Swindell. It's all that mattered. She's becoming that kid. You know what I mean? So I'm like, all right, let's do it. So I, I go to, to buy tickets online the next day and she's going to school and telling all her friends. And then I find out, oh, dads, be careful with this kind of stuff. I find out the concert's actually sold out and the cheapest ticket on StubHub is not $35. It's like $170 or something ridiculous. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? She's already there telling everybody. She's probably already tweeted it or something. Like, what am I going to do? And so coolest thing in the world. I actually took out a Craigslist ad in Reno. I put her picture on it. It was so shameless. Picture of my daughter fishing with me. Picture of my daughter. And I said, this is not about scalping. It's none of this. Just please, if anyone has extra tickets that they can sell, I can't afford what they're selling them for out there. Please help my daughter's dream come true. And one Sunday, between these services, I went in the back and my email beeped and I looked at it and there was a uh, email from this guy and he was saying that he works for Dirks Bentley's production company and he would love to help me out. Just send me your credit card info and I'll take care of that. And I'm like, wait a minute. Shyster. Like, how, what do you do with that? I'm like, I didn't think this through. How am I going to do any of this stuff? So I, I didn't know what to do. So the next morning, I, uh, I got, got up the next morning. I Googled Dirks Bentley's country singer. He's terrible. Don't listen to him. I'm, this is very, never mind. We'll get to that in a minute. But, um, I, I, what's Dirks Bentley's production company? Nashville, Tennessee. Google that. And I find it's a company called Live Nation. Big company. Represents lots of people. So I call them their number, not his number he gave me. You know what I mean? I call their number. And I'm like, hey, um, so this guy emailed me yesterday. I know this is a weird question, talking to the receptionist. But this guy named Steve, um, I can't pronounce his last name, Talafero. She goes, oh, Stephen Talafero. One minute. That's our vice president. I'm like, Whoa. So she patches me through the VP, and I'm like, hey, did you email me? And he's like, oh, yeah, that was me. I'm like, you're real. <laughs> I'm just, like, blown away by that. And he was like, you know what? I'm a, I'm a dad of a 13-year-old, and I, I saw your ad. We have this. This is creepy. We have this program that anytime anybody posts anything in the area of a concert we have coming up, it dings us. So your ad on Craigslist caused a ding that we saw. Big Brother is watching people. And he was just like, yeah, I'm going to help you guys out. And so he sends us tickets, like the best seats in the house. And my daughter was just like blown away. And we're sitting like right in front. And her hero comes out and sings and all this kind of stuff. It got a little bit weird because later Dirks Bentley's there singing. Here's my daughter singing. He's sitting there, I'm getting drunk on a plane. And I'm looking at my daughter singing. And I'm like, we're going to have to deal with that soon. But um, we'll figure that out tonight. We'll talk about that tomorrow. And it was great. It was a blast. In fact, this morning I noticed on Instagram, my daughter posted a picture of the two of us at that concert and wrote something so sweet about it, it actually brought tears to my eyes when I saw that. But that wasn't the win. The win on that trip was that at the end of every day when we were at the conferences, my daughter had been sitting with me every day with her iPad up. Granted, she doodled a little here and there, but she was taking notes about things. And we would get into the hotel room at night at the end of the evening when everything was over. And she would be like, okay, dad, I have questions. They had, they said some words I didn't really understand. Can I ask you some questions? And each night we're talking through things where I was just like, I, I can't even believe what she's able to comprehend and what she's doing, where she's learning and what she's growing. And I was blown away. And that's the win. And dads, that's hard because we don't, only battle our own flesh because we want all these other things. 
But, but we also have to figure that out. And it's also difficult. Let's face it, dads, because the win is supposed to be that our children are walking in light. And if we really look at our own lives, we, we wrestle with our own guilt and shame because we realize all the areas where we're not yet walking in light. So how do we do that? And the answer to that is the same answer Paul's given all along. We're in Christ. We understand the gospel. We understand the reality that it is not our successes or our failures that earn or disearn approval before God, that our approval before God has been fully 100% established by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that that's the record that we're now living out of. I'm not in Jeff. I'm in Christ. And I can go to him and ask for help from him. I have his spirit in me who helps me to walk more and more. I can do that with my kid to teach them. But at the same time, I've got to watch my own walk. Because I I can't just teach Hannah one thing and then live in such a way that doesn't back the message that I'm teaching her. You see how all of this connects? So dads... It's not just the Greco-Roman world that puts the responsibility on the fathers to teach those things to our children. It's also the Bible. And so we need help, amen? So we didn't do the stereotypical, have all the dads stand and let's clap for them and all that kind of stuff at the beginning um, for two reasons. Number one, we're even touching it in this thing. We don't, we appreciate you and we know we're appreciated, but we don't need to live for the approval of men so we can skip that part, amen? We just saw it. But number two, what would be much more appropriate is if we in humility admitted the difficulty of doing this as well as the responsibility to do it, but also recognize the means by which it can be done and that we would all together as men stand in humility and ask for prayer. Ask that God would allow us to complete this mission as we lead. So I'm going to ask all the fathers, if you would, if, if, no, you don't live for the approval of men. So if you're not into this, just stay seated and who cares what anybody else thinks. But like if this is your prayer, if you understand your calling, and, and this, this can be for those who don't have kids yet because that day's coming and you understand, man, I, I need to be living with all sorts of days down the road in mind as well as those whose kids are out of the nest because it still matters. But if you would join with me in humility, and I'm I'm not just standing here because I'm teaching, I'm standing because I need this. Like Paul would say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I need it more than anyone in this room. Some of us are getting our tails kicked in some of the situations. Some of us are in seasons where we're like, man, I'm having to learn how to parent all over again because I'm just struggling right now, whatever the case may be, but I'm here with you. But for those men that would join with me and say, man, I need Jesus' grace in my life so that I can be this for my kids. And I understand the responsibility to teach this to my kids, not for my wife to do it, but for me to do it. Will you stand with me? And the rest of you that are around, if you're with them or whatever, just if you could lay a hand on a shoulder or grab a hand or scratch his back, I don't know, something like that. And let's just pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace in our lives. Lord, we're so thankful that you died on the cross for the likes of us. There is not a man in this room that has any shot of standing on our own righteousness. We are fallen 
We are failed and flawed men. But you aren't. You are perfect, righteous, without spot or blemish. Lord, you would allow yourself to be flogged and beaten and to experience the death that was due all of us because of our sin. You took our shame. You took our failures on your shoulders on the cross. And Lord, we believe that. By very nature that we're standing here, we're confessing that we believe in you. That you rose again to defeat death. That you've ascended into heaven. That you, Jesus, are the king. And that we are in Christ. And Lord, what I'm asking now, Lord, on our behalf and on all the men here, help us, Lord, to live the way Paul encourages the Thessalonian men to live. With an understanding that we're part of a kingdom now. That we could walk worthy of that king. That we might be fatherly to our children, teaching them of the grace and mercy of God and teaching them to walk in such a way. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace and by your spirit, give us the ability to walk in such a way that that our, our conduct and our nature backs our message. What we're asking, Jesus, is help us to look like you. Show us, Lord, how we can do that. Make us students of your word so we can see how you lived. Empower us by your spirit to to run from sin and to embrace righteousness and holiness. Give us boldness in Christ like Paul had to speak the gospel to our families, even when it seems awkward, even if it feels like we can't do it because of our own track record. Lord, may we stand on the record of Jesus Christ and speak that gospel with boldness to our families. And may we raise, Lord, a generation of Christ followers. Lord, in our text we see that Paul, Lord, was he was sort of a surrogate father to this church and that his goal was that they would follow their heavenly father. And that's actually the reality we know, Lord, for all of our families. We are really surrogate fathers of the children that you have um, entrusted us with. So God, may you empower us to teach them to walk to their heavenly father. And may the win for all of us be just that. Lord, that our children walk in truth and follow you. May we avoid the criticisms and the critics. May we avoid the temptation to live for something else. And may our life be lived for that same thing, that we would walk in truth because, Lord, the target we set for ourselves will largely be the target our children shoot for as well. So God, we need your help and we need your grace and we thank you that you don't just share these things and tell us to pray because you don't have the intention of giving it to us. So by faith, we believe and ask that your spirit would fill us for this very task. And Lord, just thank you, Lord, for for this day. Thank you for families. Thank you, Lord, for our time in your word. And I pray, Lord, that as you move amongst the families of this church for the rest of this day. May you encourage those who have lost fathers. May you strengthen and encourage those who aren't or have never been fathers. May you be with those who have lost children. And may this Father's Day ultimately be about you, Lord, for you are our good and heavenly Father. And we just praise your name and we give you all glory, honor, and praise that is due you. In Jesus' name. 
we all say. And all God's people said, I love you guys. Have a great week.